0: In a search of New Orleans for the most popular story to tell and the most haunted home to visit, both come up the same. Madame Dauphine LaLaurie. The doctor and Mrs. LaLaurie were well known in the upper social circles and Madame Dauphine was fond of hosting gatherings of all kind. Her reputation in society would speak to her charm and sweet disposition. She and her husband would throw lavish parties several nights a week, But behind closed doors they kept a brutal secret or so you've been told welcome my name is elizabeth bougeray and i'm that person that when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain investigate the hidden passages drop into the rabbit hole or dare to walk in the shadows because we all know that's where the good stories can be found Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. While there's not a lot of cringeworthy content in this episode, the small amount that we talk about is pretty cringy. so just to be on the safe side, this is your warning. Proceed with caution and a strong stomach. If you're visiting New Orleans and choose to take a ghost tour, which I highly recommend, keep in mind that the stories you hear are meant to give you a great story, and the tour guides promise to be some of the very best storytellers found anywhere. These spooky ghost walks are meant to be pure entertainment. It gives you a glimpse into historical topics, and if you're really interested, you can always go home and look into it more. And while I hope you find the Bag of Bones podcast entertaining, I tend to steer more toward the historically accurate first, sensationalism, a distant second. I really love for the stories of history to be allowed to speak for themselves, and most times, the actual truth of history is strange enough and needs no additional fluff. So this is what you'd most likely hear if you were going on a tour. Ladies and gentlemen, here behind me is 1140 Royal Street, the infamous and touted to be the most haunted building in the city of New Orleans. This would be the home of Dr. L. Louis Nicholas LaLaurie and his wife Delphine McCarty Lopez Blanc LaLaurie. Yep, she was married three times, this one, and two of her husbands died under mysterious circumstances. While in front of neighbors and family, they were the Kardashians of the 1830s. But things aren't always what they seem. Because, on April 10th, 1834, right in the middle of a lavish party, the house goes up in flames. But how do the Lawleries handle the situation? They just move the party outside. The slaves brought out hors d'oeuvres on gleaming silver trays and continued to serve the guests. The wine barrels were rolled out into the street. Even the musicians were ordered not to run, but to set up and continue to play. Some accounts don't describe such a calm scene from the homeowners. They tell of a bossy madame ordering everyone to remove the valuables. Forget about everything else. Forget the slaves. Take the paintings and the china. Dr. Lollery was said to be the one who walked around not really caring with a drink in his hand. Eventually, the fire department and the police show up. Here is where the timeline gets a little wonky, but that's okay because we're still in story mode so it doesn't really have to make sense. Apparently, the fireman found a slave woman in her 70s, chained to the stove in the kitchen, who claims to have started the fire because she couldn't take the abuse any longer. She told the police once they took her across the street to safety that the madame was upset with her, and after tonight's party, she was going to be taken to the uppermost floor. She didn't know what happened upstairs, but she knew that anyone that went up there never came back down. This prompted the police to tell the firefighters, check upstairs. On the third floor, as every storyteller will say, the firemen found a locked door and came back to ask the lolleries for the key. The owners of the house refused to help, and Dr. Lollerie basically told them that they should mind their own business and leave their upper level alone, which is basically true. Their curiosity piqued, They decided to break down the door. The New Orleans Bee would report in their paper on the 11th, quote, seven slaves, more or less horribly mutilated, suspended by the neck, with their limbs apparently stretched and torn from one extremity to the other, They were starved to the point of their empty stomachs touched their spine, and when ample food and water was placed before them, they died from their body rejecting the food they'd so long gone without. Oh wait, it gets better. With every retelling, and by how much the guide feels his audience can handle. So hold on, we've already issued the warning, and we might as well make good use of it. Some stories tell of the slaves either hung by the neck with sharp-studded neck irons or strapped to tables where unthinkable mutilations had been done to them. One had their intestines pulled from their insides and wrapped around them. Another was said to have reconstruction work done, swapping sexes with the person laying beside them. A woman was said to have a deep, untreated hole in her head that left her unable to walk, with maggots crawling around. Still another, a man who was chained to the wall had a hole drilled in his skull with a wooden spoon protruded from it. It's claimed this wooden rod was used to stir the brains about. Buckets of body parts, the floor slick and sticky with blood, the stench of death and decay. In some stories, there is a second room where the slaves undergo the worst of experimentation. The skin is flayed from whipping. Another has rings of flesh stripped away, making the body resemble a caterpillar. Still another has the flesh gently pulled away from the face and pinned back, the eyes searching the room for aid and teeth exposed into a permanent smile. They are all starved and filthy. Some have their mouths sewn closed. Some are coated with honey so ants and cockroaches and rats can tear away at their skin. But then there's the experiments done to cause deformity. Bones broken, so much so that they can be compressed into a small box. Another, her bones were broken and reset to force her to crawl about the floor like a crab, hissing and growling at those who tried to save her. Andrew Ward, a tour guide from the Haunted History Tours, continues the story, The human atrocities came down one after another and paraded past the party's guests still sipping on wine, as they were taken to the hospital where every single one of them were euthanized, put out of their misery. I'm only talking about the ones who were still alive. There were dozens of people who had not survived these outright tortures and sadistic experiments, and when the crowd assembled on the other side of the street, they were whipped into an angry mob. They wanted to go inside and lynch the Lawleries. But the Lawleries were able to buy an awful lot of police officers. Ninety-eight accepted hefty bribes. They formed barricades at either end of the street, and they held back the swelling mob all night long. At ten-thirty in the morning on April 11th, the doors to the main mansion opened wide, and out comes a carriage driven by six black horses. Bastien, the coachman, parks the carriage, and out comes Dr. Louis with a rifle. And Madame Delphine, looking very calmly and casually, looks at both ends of the crowd and has the audacity to wave before stepping inside and closing the door. End quote. By now the mob is furious, and when they see the carriage speeding away, some take after it, others ravage the home, stealing every piece of movable items and destroying what was left of the foundation. The tale of their escape goes on to say that once the carriage reaches the end of the road, the mob catches up to it and destroys the carriage, slaughters the horses, and hangs the loyal slave and carriage driver, Bastion. I'll once again let Andrew have the final say for this section. He would tell his group, quote, They make their way to Lake Pontchartrain, where a schooner is already waiting for them and carries them across. They liquidate their assets and take all of their gold, and cash to New York, where they spend nine days going jewelry shopping, dress shopping, and attend the opera. We know this because we still have their receipts. And then they book a passage to Paris and disappear, end quote. And by now, this is where you're probably begging for a Loomy sponsored break, which is coming. But I wanted to leave you with this first. Every tour guide's retelling of the events differs. But more importantly, 90% of what you've just heard that is told in almost every single tour, on almost every single website, in almost every single blog, is false. As a mother of grown daughters, and with me traveling alone across the country, personal safety is always on my mind. I am always aware of my surroundings. I always let my people know where and when I'm going places. But to add that extra level of safety, I am never unprotected. Thanks to Damsel in Defense, I have several options for my personal safety. And can I just say, they are super cute. But don't think that just because they have bling, that they won't do some damage to allow you to get to safety. And Damsel in Defense has thought of everything. DNA grab, GPS alerts and easy to carry and access should the need ever arise. For your safety and all the women in your sphere, I beg you to check out these amazing products at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. Marie Delphine McCarty was a true native of New Orleans, born in March of either 1775 or 1787. Record-keeping was a little sketchy. In other research, I found it had no dates of her birth, but it did mention that she was married later in life, at an older age, and not, perhaps, as the second date would insinuate, married at 13. She grew up in wealth and opulence and was taught manners, charm, and how to run a household, and all things required of her to own a successful plantation, similar to the one she was raised on. She would be introduced to all manners of wealthy suitors, but as I mentioned before, would wait until she was a bit older before deciding to marry. Don Ramon Lopez would be her first husband. They were married in June of 1800. At the time, even though he left Spain, Lopez still worked for the Spanish king, and this was after Spain handed over control of Louisiana to France. But still, Spain wanted to keep its presence known in the territory. All that to say, it was still a requirement that Lopez receive consent in his choice of bride from the king before the wedding. Lopez did not do this for whatever reason, and was stripped of his office and ordered to return to Spain at once. He pleaded to be allowed to stay, but instead was exiled to San Sebastian in 1801. In 1803, the United States purchased Louisiana, and Lopez was pardoned by the Spanish government and allowed to live once again in New Orleans. On a voyage either to or from, the very pregnant Delphine would accompany Lopez, but he died. Whenever and however things happened are not really explained, but the short version is She became a widow and a new mother in the span of a day or two. She returned to New Orleans with her daughter she nicknamed Borquita to be with her family. In 1808, Delphine married husband number two, Jean Blanc. He had his hands in many things but is probably best remembered for his part in the Battle of New Orleans. He was integral to the plan of Jean Lafitte in surprising the British upon their attack. Delphine likes the Rule Breakers. Side note, if you're curious about more on the Battle of New Orleans, I talk about Jean Lafitte's part and his ghost in episode 2 of this season, Ghosts of New Orleans. A portion of the book called Old New Orleans, written by Arthur Clisby, states that Blanc was the man to see about items referred to as, quote, black ivory and, quote, goods upon which custom duties were not collected, end quote. Some may have called it privateering, but others definitely referred to his skills as pirateering. The Blancs had four children, three girls and a boy. In 1818, we lose track of Jean Blanc. There is no more documentation on whether he dies or sneaks away, but Delphine is set in terms of finances. She is well documented with taking over his affairs and estate. On January twelfth, 1828, Delphine would marry for the third and final time to Louis LaLaurie, M.D., who had moved to the States only three years prior. LaLaurie was trained as a dentist, but as was common in the 1800s, titles and specialties were loosely regulated. It was quite common for doctors who studied in one area experiment, or completely switch to another. The doctor showed an interest in assisting those with spinal deformities and would place an advertisement announcing as such. This is how the two would meet according to letters. One of Delphine's daughters was considered a hunchback. A son was born to the couple, his first, her sixth. Side note, their son Jean-Louis LaLaurie was born on August thirteenth, 1827. The St. Louis Cathedral marriage and baptismal records show that the couple did not marry until five months later, on January twelfth, eighteen 1828. In a contract enacted on the day of their wedding, Delphine specified that she would retain control over her personal property, real estate, and slaves, together worth $67,000. LaLaurie brought only $2,000 to the marriage, and even that was tied up in his late mother's estate. They would purchase the mansion at 1140 Royal in 1832. The beautiful two-story Creole-style mansion had only been a year old when the Lolleries moved in and made it their own. It wasn't long before the local papers were talking about her lavishly decorated rooms, exquisite art, and gorgeous furniture. She would be the queen of the French Quarter. A couple of other little interesting things that are worth mentioning before you are up-to-date. Dr. Lollery never opened a public practice that could be discovered, but notes of correspondence and receipts were found that he accepted various medical appointments, so it's assumed he worked and accepted patients at his home. And also, there are no portraits that survived of Louise Lollery, Madame Lollery, or of their home. The first time the public sees an image of Madame since the event doesn't happen until 1997 when a painting of her is commissioned. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com merch now to check things out. From this point, the storyteller slash guide has any number of pieces from the Lawlery file they could tell you. A- to keep their audience never hearing the same story every night, B, to never have to tell the same story every night, and C, if they do get bored, what's a little embellishment? This one is a favorite. It's about a six-year-old girl, or eight-year-old, or twelve-year-old, Mingo, or sometimes Leah. It goes a little something like this. A neighbor who also happened to be a second cousin to Delphine who claimed he was cheated out of an inheritance because Delphine's aunt married his uncle, and so he has feelings about that. He claims he saw his cousin chasing a girl with a bullwhip through the house as the child ran in fear. They ended up on the roof, and the child fell to her death. Madame Delphine loomed over the edge with the bullwhip still in her hand. She looked down at the broken body, lying still and broken on the ground below. The bitter cousin's locked eyes, and she knew her secret was out. Her cousin at once reported Madame to the authorities, and a lawyer was sent to her residence to gently remind her of the Code Noir law restrictions of how to handle their slaves, but was so, quote, enchanted and starry-eyed by Madame that he forgot why he was even there. Side note, the Code Noir laws should be an episode of their own, but for those of you who don't know, The Code Noir is a set of rules that reminded slave owners just how far they were allowed to go in reprimanding their slaves. Having slaves in the first place is reprehensible, granted, but at a time when it was commonplace, these laws that were created in France and adopted in Louisiana, particularly when it was controlled by France, explain what the conduct was expected from both slave and master, like all slaves were to be instructed as Catholics and not Protestants, Three more slaves were not allowed to congregate, especially if from different masters. Or the state of the newborn, if free or slave, was determined by the mother. If she was a slave, so was the child. And likewise, if she was a free person. But in their own way and blindness, they like to believe that these laws were in place for the safety of the slaves. Like not allowing the slaves to trade or sell any commodity, especially not sugar, for then all parties involved would be fined. For more of an example, it applies to this story. Article 42 states, quote, The masters may also, when they believe that their slaves so deserve, chain them and have them beaten with rods or straps. They shall be forbidden, however, from torturing them or mutilating any limb at risk of having the slaves confiscated and having extraordinary charges brought against them, Chasing a child with a whip and forcing her off the edge of the roof would most definitely qualify as breaking the code noir. But, as the story goes, the young lawyer that came to the house was so charmed by the madam that he found nothing amiss. The slaves, in the meantime, carried the child to the backyard and either buried her in the well or dug a shallow grave for her. The neighbor slash cousin pressed further for a trial and the story goes that Madame Delphine Lalaurie was taken to court and found guilty of cruelty. The judge fined her a paltry $300 and ordered nine slaves to be, quote, forfeited according to the law, end quote. But by some family connection she was able to repurchase these same nine slaves but then had to keep them out of sight for, quote, she could not let them be seen in a neighborhood where they were known, end quote. It is assumed that the seven slaves pulled from the fire are the same slaves that had been locked away and tortured in the attic. The only parts about this story that are true is that the neighbor was her second cousin, and there is a record of Madame Delphine paying the famous lawyer John Grimes the sum of $300 for legal fees for, quote, My fee for defending the prosecution of the state against her in the criminal court, end quote. But it is not explained further. And then, code noir. That was a very real thing. The rest, not at all. Another favorite story from the LaLaurie file. Some books and blogs go so far as to call her a well-known sadist. And others give her the more modern title of serial killer. But one of the lesser-told stories would be Madame Delphine was an abusive mother. According to British journalist Harriet Martineau, who we will discuss later, would write, It appears that she beat her daughters often as they attempted in her absence to convey food to her miserable victims. She always knew of such attempts by means of the sleek coachman who was her spy. It was necessary to have a spy to preserve her life from the vengeance of her household. So she pampered this obsequious Negro and at length owed her escape to him, As far as her life beyond the fire of 1834, most tour guides just end their tales with, and they disappeared, never being punished for their crimes. Okay, so that part is true. They were never tried or held accountable for the cruelty of their slaves. Some will offer up that Madame Lalaurie died in France in about 1840 after being gored by a wild boar during a hunt. False others say it was Dr. LaLaurie who was killed on a boar hunt. Also false. Some stories will tell you that Madame LaLaurie died in 1842 and is buried in the St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. This is a tricky one because there is quote-unquote evidence to prove that this is so, but most historians believe this to be false also. And what about the house itself? The very location where any number of tour groups stop next to or across the street from day and night. Kendall Ray, in her video, Secrets of the Haunted Lollery Mansion, said, quote, There was a claim that one of the slaves at one time finally decided to throw himself out the window to avoid being punished by Delphine. And as you can see in this picture, the window is still cemented off. So creepy. End quote the people of the French Quarter began talking about hearing strange disembodied noises coming from the Lollery home, mere weeks of it being abandoned. Supposedly, it began with those charged with the task of cleaning up the burned wreckage. Hearing muffled cries, terrified screams, chains rattling and scratching on the walls. Convinced that more slaves were hidden somewhere, they did another thorough search and found no other survivors. In the 1946 book, Ghost stories of old New Orleans, written by Jean Delavigne, would write: quote, Workmen employed to repair the old cypress floors began digging up human skeletons from under the house. The owner of the property, in an attempt to drown the mansion's gruesome reputation, announced that the house had been built over an ancient Spanish burying ground, and that over an Indian graveyard which was quite true, only the bones were too recent to have been deposited there before 1803, and they were too near the surface to have been at any time buried in graves. They were found in all sorts of positions, helter-skelter, some barely covered with soil, shreds of fabric still adhering to some of the bones, and whenever hair was found near a skull, it was negro hair. Some of the skulls had great holes in them. The authorities said that at least some scraps of wood or metal would have been found with or among the bones had they been interred in coffins. As they were not in a trench, their burial could not have been in consequence of an epidemic. So, it all simmered down to one conclusion. They were the bodies of lawlery slaves buried thus in order that their manner of death should not become known, quote. Andrew Ward tells his tours, quote, the summer of 1953, and they are about ready to put down modern plumbing. But first, they rip up the old floorboards and they find... a lot more than old plumbing. They find eight human skeletons. Signs of great distress underneath the floorboards, especially when you consider the horror that the underside of the floorboards had scratch marks. Eight people had been buried alive inside that mansion. And now we know about the legends that had started about this place being haunted back in the 1830s. People hearing screams from the other side of the street. Those weren't ghosts. Those were real people underneath the floorboards begging for help. Quote. And still other stories state that, quote, In the 1970s, when the floorboards of the Lollery Mansion were pulled up during restoration, the bodies of up to 20 people who had been buried alive were found. Ah, uh, I have so much to say. Let me just put this out there: the house was burnt down, the residence was ransacked, and the reports would write that nothing was left of the structure but portions of the exterior walls. Carolyn Morrow Long, author of the book *Madame Lollery: Mistress of the Haunted House*, adds: quote, the newspapers reported that her successful escape from the hands of justice. So exasperated the populace that they attacked her empty house. The rioters smashed furniture, china, crystal, and works of art, wrecked the floors, stairs, and wainscoting, broke windows, dismantled the iron balconies, and continued their assault on the roof and walls until nearly the whole of the edifice had been pulled down." The Williams Research Center had documented that the building that now stands at 1140 Royal is not the design of the original home owned by the Lawleries. Even though many guides have misspoke saying that this is the original but renovated structure. After the fire, there were no floors to pull up. If there were bones and bodies found once the floorboards were pulled up in later renovations, we need to be looking elsewhere for the culprits other than the Lawleries. Just saying. And to ease your mind, even in the 1970s, when the rumors resurfaced about bodies under the floorboards, there was no printed reports, articles, or any kind of documentation on this matter. And who could pass up writing an article about that? The original design was a two story, reflecting the design styles of the 1830s, and the current three story building was built in the popular style of the 1840s and 1850s. So, too, there was no third-story window a slave could have jumped from. In addition, as part of the cleanup and to dispel rumors, the firefighters also dug up much of the property and reported that no bodies were found. The building was burnt to the ground. Nothing left. No, quote, rooms that slaves were kept in, no slave child's grave that fell from the roof, No secret torture chamber that was used for medical experiments where headless ghosts would be walking around holding their own heads burned to the ground. Hello everyone, it's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break. And this one highlights Lumi deodorant. But today, we're not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash, Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places, promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the body wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus, you help support an awesome podcast. Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you. Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. Printed in the New Orleans Bee, April 12th of 1834, less than 12 hours from the discovery of the abused slaves, they publish, quote, The slaves were the property of the demon in shape of a woman whom we mentioned in the beginning of this article. They had been confined by her for several months in the situation from which they had thus been rescued, and had merely been kept in existence to prolong their suffering and to make them taste all that the most refined cruelty could inflict. End quote. Welcome back. Buckle up, cause now I'm on a roll. First of all, how did Madame Delphine become the obvious choice for these heinous crimes, even if they were true? I'm not saying that women are not capable of some really terrible things. We have episodes in the Bag of Bones library already to show that. But before her marriage to Lalaurie, there have never been any accounts of cruelty about her. She is remembered as kind and charming. Stanley Arthur, president of the Board of Curators at Louisiana State Museum, would comment, I have always thought that Madame Lalaurie was the first victim of yellow journalism. His views would show up in print in the Times-Picayune in 1941. There is nothing in the record to indicate that she was the type of woman pictured by them. One must remember that there was much social jealousy in the days, and that Madame Lalaurie occupied an enviable position socially. She was considered a celebrity of the time. And if she was doing stupid stuff on the regular, they would have put it in print, just like they did after the fire. Normally, this isn't the kind of behavior that just pops up in a person overnight. She had a strong will and went after the things she wanted. She took care of her very large family and handled their affairs. But no mention of beating her children or treating their slaves with such a heavy hand. She was raised on a plantation and was around slaves all the time there would have been plenty of opportunity for a cruel character to have shown itself. And no, I know some of the stories out there claim that her mother and father were killed from a slave uprising, but that was not true. Midian von Thorne, for example, who is a tour guide for the Haunted History Tours, shares, erroneously, to his guests, quote, This is a woman who came from money, married into money. She obviously saw the slaves as well beneath her, but... You have to understand this poor girl witnessed her father being decapitated by a slave during the slave riot in Santa Domingo. This scarred her mentally from a very young age, and she never got over it. End quote. Yeah, it didn't happen. Kendall Ray offered some additional insight into the psyche of why Madame Lollery might be guilty of the crimes laid at her feet. Quote, There's an idea that she was trying to solve a past crime. Right before the fire happened, her mother was actually killed on a different property that they owned. So some people actually believe that she was interrogating these slaves to try and get information out of them to try to somehow possibly solve who killed her mother, end quote. Great motive, great story, but also didn't happen. I'm not trying to claim her total innocence. I'm not saying that she was a saint, not saying that she wasn't a spoiled brat. She was. She was definitely narcissistic, but that doesn't mean she was wielding the scalpel. From my research into her character, I don't think she would have wanted to get dirty, and being the lady that she was, she probably wouldn't have been able to handle the smell of the room. Were the slaves treated poorly? Yes. Were there signs of torture? Yes. But there was no proof that cruel medical experiments such as sex changes and piles of body parts existed. The slaves that were rescued from the garret were brought out on stretchers and laid under the arches of the portico of the Cabledo, which is like their city hall. They were placed in full view and thousands of spectators strolled by to witness their suffering. They were malnourished and they had been whipped. The wounds from their ankles, wrists, and necks betrayed the heavy iron bands holding them hostage. One woman did have an open wound on her head. They were chained and had heavy neck braces that were used, but they did not have spikes and their bones were not broken. It doesn't make things acceptable, but in many a slave owner's home, slaves were treated much the same way. Again, not justifying behavior, just detailing history. Henry Castellanos, author of the book called New Orleans As It Was, Episodes of Louisiana Life, writes on the seven victims, survived from the fire and put on display. Two thousand persons at least convinced themselves during that eventful day by ocular inspection of the martyrdom to which these poor degraded people had been subjected, while the ravenous appetite with which they devoured the food placed before them fully attest to their sufferings from hunger. None of them, however, died from suffet, as it has been erroneously alleged. End quote. The Code Noir may have set boundaries around excessive punishments for slaves, but unfortunately, many slave owners felt they deserved to be able to treat quote, "their property" any way they like," end quote. much as Dr. Lalaurie expressed telling the authorities to mind their business. Madame Lalaurie's cousin, Madame Lanius, was known for her extremely harsh punishment of slaves. She felt that it was necessary to keep the slaves under control to quell another slave rebellion. Author and historian Daniel Rasmussen wrote the book American Uprising. In it, he concurs with Madame Lanus's theories, believing that they were terrified of further slave rebellions, such as the one in 1811. He would write about some of the quote-unquote average atrocities that could be used at many of the slave owners' plantations and homes. Quote, they would tie your hands to four stakes, then whip you with a cat of nine tails, and that would leave you bleeding and barely able to move. They also had iron masks to put around your head so that you couldn't eat. They had collars with spikes facing inward so the slaves couldn't sleep without getting spikes stuck in their neck. Those were common forms of punishment in Louisiana during this period. They believed that without the threat of tremendous violence, slaves wouldn't stay slaves. End quote. From the book Mad Madame Lollerie*, the authors would write, quote, While other women perpetrated the same kind of abuse, particularly out on the plantations, Madame Lollerie was the one who got caught, end quote. Which was the issue. Do what you want, just keep your dirty laundry in the backyard. Lollerie was vilified. Made an example of. Or I could be thinking too much on it, and she was just a great beginning of any number of exaggerations to keep a story fresh and alive. And then, Carolyn Morrow Long's examination from her book, Madame LaLaurie, wrote of her discovery that records paint a damning picture. She has worked out that Delphine owned at least 54 men, women, and children in her lifetime and held an inventory of 30 slaves at the time of the fire. In total, Long found funeral records of 20 of Delphine's slaves, but an additional 19 were unaccounted for after the fire. Quote, at a time when slaves were property, and record-keeping was meticulous, this is unusual and has sinister implications end quote. and From the authors' Love and Shannon, they write quote, the fact that the number of people killed by the lolleries, if any, is unknown. This is not to say that the Lolorries did not commit murder at any point, but there is no solid documentation to prove that, surely, if Madame had a history of strange deaths in her home accidental or otherwise, court documents would have reflected this, and the newspapers would have jumped all over it following the 1834 incident, end quote. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So, again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a 5-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! Which brings me to my second point. Why hasn't Blame landed squarely at the feet of, I don't know, The Doctor? We don't know this guy. He just came over from France with his freshly minted license to use a scalpel. He was trained as a dentist, but suddenly he's a spinal expert? I mean, he didn't really have a day job. On April 12th, following the fire, the French consul Armand Sillard submitted an account to the French Minister of Foreign Affairs. He detailed his account of viewing the slaves that were rescued from the Lollery home on the night of the fire. He described their quote, legs torn from the chains and bodies streaked with blood from head to foot from whiplashes and sharp instruments. End quote. It's even possible that Dr. Lollery, who had a documented history of physical abuse, committed the atrocities on his own. Dr. Lollery's nonchalant answer to a would-be rescuer of basically. Mind the business at hand seemed to indicate that he knew what was happening behind locked doors and was trying to divert attention away from them. It's possible that Louis LaLaurie was trying to hide his abuse of power over people considered his property. He's young. He's defiant. He lives in the shadow of his beautiful, well-known, highly respected, and wealthy wife. He knew he was breaking the laws of Code Noir. Getting caught could have serious backlash to his business and his precarious reputation. It's also documented that Dr. Louis Lollerie abused his wife. A man who would raise his fists to his wife might not flinch at blurring the lines of property over harm. In noting with written records of slaves, it also showed that out of the 20 deaths in total, 12 died in the short period between 1831 and 1833, only after her marriage and after they moved into the mansion on Royal. An article written by Natasha Sheldon confirms that her rumors of cruelty only began after her third marriage. She writes about a former sea captain turned business manager for a French baron and local busybody, Jean Bose, who was happy to pass along the latest gossip from the Lollery household. Bose would send this gossip to his employer in France, quote, Madame Blanc has married a young French doctor. They do not have a happy household. They fight, they separate, and they return to each other, which would make one believe that someday they will abandon each other completely, end quote. In eighteen thirty two, in fact, Delphine petitioned the court for a separation, testifying that Lollerie's treatment had quote, rendered their living together insupportable, end quote, and that, quote, in the presence of many witnesses he beat and wounded her in the most outrageous and cruel manner. End quote. She asked the judge to authorize her to live separately from her husband in the home she now occupies with her family. Apparently, he had already been residing elsewhere because the summons of the request had to be delivered to his address in Plaquemines Parish. Many stories and rumors claim that Dr. Lollery was murdered. This has also been debunked because he was very much present on the night of the fire. He would be remembered not only for his refusal to give authorities the keys to the garret, but would be documented as saying in more than a little insulting tone, quote, There are persons who would do much better by remaining at home than visiting others to dictate them laws in the quality of officious friends." Lollery stated before a notary that his medical practice required spending most of his time in other counties, thus accounting for much of his absence. Dr. Lollery was known to keep meticulous journals. He had a very scientific eye and would write about the weather daily. And while these journals didn't really show much of his personality, or maybe they did, none were found after his arrival to Louisiana. They might have gone up in flames, but I can't help but think that there was a journal somewhere, and I can only imagine what light it would shine on the missing pieces of this story. What if the doctor was the guilty party? What if Madame was the wealthy southern wife that let her husband tend to all the ugly things? Would she have even known... Would she have even cared being around slavery her whole life? I imagine she was used to seeing slaves come and go. Perhaps she didn't want to be embarrassed by her less-than-perfect choice of husbands, thinking, who could possibly find out? The authors Love and Shannon quote, We believe Madame Delphine McCarty-Lopez Blanc-Lalerie was not a serial killer, a sexual sadist, or a perpetrator of bizarre medical experiments. She was a willful, spoiled, beautiful, creole socialite whose temper led her down the path of infamy. Exactly how great a role she played in the torture and neglect of the slaves in her household will never be known, If she had truly not known that what was being done to her slaves was wrong, she would not have tried to hide the fact by discouraging would-be rescuers from going into the attic. Maybe she knew that what was happening was wrong, or at least illegal, but she just did not care. And then there is the slight possibility that Madame LaLaurie was completely oblivious to the whole situation. Her disobedient slave problems were taken care of by her husband. She was already absent when the abused slaves were brought forth to the public. She knew that they were being punished. Everyone punished their slaves. Why the big fuss? This would account for Madame wanting to return to New Orleans, not realizing the gravity of her husband's sins. End quote. her son paulin from her second husband believes she was innocent in the letter he writes from france to his brother-in-law in the states quote, i truly believe that my mother never had a true idea concerning what the cause of her departure from new orleans was since she is thinking of returning to that country again End quote. he goes on to say that she had no concept of the stresses she puts on her children by thinking that her presence everywhere she goes, especially in the States, would cause a great scandal. Quote, I bemoan, as we almost bemoan, the fate that awaits us if ever again my mother sets foot in that place where her conduct elicited general disapproval. She has caused us to shed many tears, and where she goes we prepare ourselves for bad news owing to her presence. End quote. On the ship in which Dr. and Mrs. LaLaurie would make their escape to France, they were seen by the American poet William Cullen Bryant. He made a note in his journal about seeing the scandalous couple, the headlines already announcing her guilt. He would refer to her as, quote, the one to have committed such horrible cruelties upon her slaves, quote. but would also note, perhaps a bit more tenderly, quote, she seemed much affected by the reserve which the other travelers treated her, and was frequently seen in tears. End quote. She was not used to being treated and accused of such things. She was Creole royalty, after all. Was she responsible? Was she an accessory? Was she aware? The scene at the Musicanti Historical Wax Museum shows Madame dressed in a pink and white dress from the 1830s. This tableau, created and unchanged since the museum's opening, would have you believe that when her husband is away, she relies on her trusted slave, Bastien, to do the whipping. It portrays Madame Delphine holding a candle, observing while Bastien lashes two slaves who are emaciated and chained. The slant of the press and popular culture make the decision for you. Hello, listeners we are katie amber kylie and matt and we are the hosts of save me an aisle seat a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way if you like musicals or theater in general or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start we'd love to help introduce you come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com and we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat So let's talk about the impact of the press. The fact that the story of young Leah doesn't show up until the British journalist Harriet Martineau shows up, visiting the United States in 1836, it's an interesting one to consider. You know how when you're watching the news stories and they interviewed quote-unquote witnesses? The witnesses want to be so helpful and maybe they feel pressured to offer something astounding. I think maybe that's what's happened here. Martineau says she talked to several witnesses about the character of the Lollery household and, oh, the stories that were shared. Without fact-checking, Martineau sent them to print, and history was invented. The story of Leah got carried along and passed on and on and on, and is still very much a part of the tapestry of the haunted Lollery home. Usually writing with a feminist slant, in the account of Madame, she gave no such credit— other than saying she ran all things in the household and with the slaves, so much so that her husband had no idea of what was happening right under his nose. She writes, quote, Her third husband, Monsieur Lalaurie, was, I believe, a Frenchman. He was many years younger than his lady and had nothing to do with the management of her property, so that he has been in no degree mixed up with her affairs and disgraces, end quote. From the authors Love and Shannon, their opinion of Martineau's writing, they believe changed the timeline. They say, quote, Martineau's tale set the standard for vilification of Madame Lalaurie. She set Dr. Lollerie aside as ineffectual, setting the blame squarely on the shoulders of Delphine. Her dramatic descriptions, which she says she collected from eyewitnesses, defamed Madame Lalaurie forever, end quote. Martineau is also the brainchild of the unsupported, unfounded, and undocumented story of the suit where Madame Delphine had to give up nine slaves only to sneak them back to her home, and, of course, Madame's abusive maternal instincts. In reading the letters to and from her children, there is no outward signs of their abuse. Their interchange seems tender and familial, but I guess if you wanted to look hard enough, you can see what you want to see. I have reason to believe that she's not the only parent who was, quote, subject to extreme mood swings from a captivating amiability to violent fits of temper, end quote. I mean, I'm pretty sure I went through that entire cycle yesterday. When the stories created by Martineau of the Lollery event were published five years after the actual event, it would be repeated and reprinted in almost every retelling and swallowed as fact. But as we will soon see, Martineau's story will pale in comparison to the written word that comes next. George Washington Cable, who was a Louisiana native, became a journalist following the war. He is responsible for bringing the hauntings of the mansion to the campfire. He may have authored several books, but is probably best remembered as traveling and being friends with the legendary author Mark Twain. One of his books, Strange True Stories of Louisiana, he poetically describes the home the rebuilt 1840s model, and a ghost story or two. He writes, quote, A last word while we are still here. There are other reasons, one at least besides tragedy and crime, that make people believe that this place is haunted. This particular spot is hardly one where a person would prefer to see a ghost, even if one knew it was but an optical illusion. But one evening, some years ago, when a bright moon was mounting high and swinging well around to the south, a young girl who lived nearby who had proper skepticism for the marvels of gossips passed by this house. She was approaching it from the opposite sidewalk when, glancing up at the Belvedere outlined so loftily on the night sky, she saw with startling clearness, although pale and misty in the deep shadows of the cupola, it made me shudder, she says, until I reasoned the matter out a single, silent, motionless object, the figure of a woman leaning against its lattice. By careful scrutiny, she made it out to be only a sorcery of moonbeams that fell aslant from the farther side through the skylight of the Belvedere's roof and sifted through the lattice. Would that there be no more reality to the story before us." And while his prose is artistic and beautiful, Thinking he is being true to history, he too follows the stories created from Martineau. However, an article that was printed on March 13, 1892, the Daily Picayune, Merrick Point writes about the haunted house, saying he wants to dispel myths created by the writer George Washington Cable, which Point believes were probably dramatized to the point of fiction for newspapers and books. Point writes, quote, how much of the story is true and how much the creation of mr cable's fancy the old creoles of new orleans will tell you end quote. throughout the article that includes hand-drawn pictures and long descriptions of the home point writes the injuries of the slaves cable described were exaggerated but goes into great detail of the mob going after lolaree's carriage then killing the horses after she escaped and destroying her home by ransacking and burning it end quote. Everybody's a critic, I guess. When the stories of the New Orleans Bee and the imaginations of Martineau don't excite any longer, author Jeanne de is standing by, ready to take things up a notch or seven. In her retelling of the Lollary story in her book Ghost Stories from Old New Orleans, brace yourself, she writes. Quote, The man who smashed the garret door saw powerful male slaves, stark naked, chained to the wall, their eyes gouged out, their fingernails pulled off by the roots, others had their joints skinned and festering, great holes in their buttocks where the flesh had been sliced away, their ears hanging by shreds, their lips sewed together, their tongues drawn out and sewed to their chins, severed hands stitched to bellies, legs pulled joint from joint, Female slaves, their mouths and ears crammed with ashes and chicken offal and bound tightly. Others had been smeared with honey and were a mass of black ants. Intestines were pulled out and knotted around naked waists. There were holes in skulls where a rough stick had been inserted to stir the brains. Some of the poor creatures were dead, some were unconscious, and a few were still breathing, suffering agonies beyond any power to describe." The authors of Mad Madame Lalaurie write, quote, according to the many pages of the World Wide Web, Madame Lalaurie is guilty of serial killing, sending voodoo curses, raising a devil baby, turning her slaves into zombies, and plenty of other horrid but rather ridiculous and unbelievable crimes. Most websites quote one another or the same B article sourced above over and over. Many websites relate one variation or another or core story with some embellishment and artistic license. Some seem to espouse ideas pulled from the webmaster's own head, not based in fact, rumor, or even logic, And while thankfully there are now authors and historians who seek the true story, the gruesome, gory, get more gruesome and more gory with every retelling. I find it funny now, having researched this subject for some time, that when I hear a new spin on the tale, I literally roll my eyes. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere with Bag of Bones. As a full-time author and amateur historian, I'm out here traveling alone across the United States. I like to know that I can travel safely. That's why I love Damsel in Defense. From tasers to mace, I can be confident knowing that I can defend myself, allowing the world of travel to be open to me. Damsel in Defense offers a variety of self-defense items to choose from, and you can decide what is best for your comfort level. And now I can feel safe while out and about, in my truck, and even at home in my camper. I love this company's mission and dedication to quality. And thanks to Damsel in Defense, I can offer you this exclusive link and you can take control of your safety too. Check out their full product line at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. Martinu would have us believe that the departure of the Lalauries from their burning home was calm, cool, and arrogant, unfeeling even as she sipped a glass of wine, leaving her children and possessions behind under the well-thought-out escape plan administered by Bastien her steadfast slave, while an unruly mob raced after them on foot. The Lalauries left as a couple and had enough time to handle their affairs before boarding a ship to France. The madame would sign and give her power of attorney to her son-in-law, who would sell whatever was left of the estate, their belongings, and slaves and liquidate all other assets. Even though she had shown to have emancipated a few slaves in her past, she did not free any of these slaves. They too were sold. From there, they could easily find comfort as they both had friends and family to stay with. She lived with at least one of her children until her death. Also, according to Martineau, Madame Delphine was, quote, is supposed to be now sulking in some French province under a false name, end quote, which is believed to be highly unlikely since she could not be charged with any crimes in another country, and she had a good standing with family and in-laws who resided there. Eventually the unity of the couple felt under duress faded, and they found no other reason to stay together. It seems that Louis Lollerie left for Cuba and was never seen again. The son in law in charge of Delphine's finances would hand over the reins to another son in law, who felt that it was okay for him to spend the money for personal use. There is a lot of correspondence from Delphine trying to urge him to pay her bills. Carolyn Morrow Long writes. Quote, the second son-in-law, appropriated Delphine's money for his own purposes and neglected to send her monthly payments as promised. She was borrowing heavily at exorbitant interest rates to support her lavish lifestyle, and feared that her creditors would refuse to renew her promissory notes. In letter after letter, Delphine badgered de to send money and give an accounting of her financial affairs. Finally, she determined to return to New Orleans to resolve the situation in person. End quote. Madame would stay in France, longing for New Orleans, but not making her way back across the ocean. That we can conclusively prove. In most of the articles about her, she is said to have died and been buried in Paris, France, in 1842. Then, in 1851, her body was exhumed and shipped back overseas and buried in New Orleans St. Louis Cemetery number one. A tattered gold plaque was found there stating as much. Many historians believe this to be false. As hated and reviled as she was, but still longing for home, many believe this piece of evidence was planted, hoping that if everyone thought she was dead, she could secretly come back to her family's estate. However, supporting that last theory, there are also legal documents stating that she was tending to affairs in her brother's estate, alive and well, in New Orleans, in the 1850s. So, as with the rest of her life shrouded with mystery and unanswered questions, why should her death be any different? I can share with you in confidence that she was not gored by a boar. Neither was Lewis. No one knows where her body is buried. The majority believe that she was interred with her son, Paulin Blanc, in his mausoleum. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Bag of Bones. Whew! This girl took me down some serious rabbit holes. And I have listener Amber Simon to thank for suggesting Madame Lollerie for this week's topic. You may know Amber from the Ragtag Network's sister podcast, Save Me an Isle Seat, where they talk about and break down musicals. It's so fun listening to their banter and learning about theater facts and musicals that I might never have heard of. If you haven't already, give them a listen. But in the meantime, thank you again, Amber, for your awesome suggestion for my show. We have one listener request left, and I can't wait for you to hear it. I'm Elizabeth Bougere. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethboucheret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.